Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. On today's show, we sit down with Struan Grant Ralph to savour the past and future of a heritage whisky brand. Glenfiddich does have a commitment to each and every day making the best whisky that they can, and that comes from the stewardship of a distilling family. Plus, Monaco's Chris Chermak takes us to Washington DC to attend a very special gathering of chefs. With the heads of state, when, when they're travelling, you know, they want to experience the local culture too. Just like all of us when we travel, so we don't encourage anything. All that here on the menu on Monocle Radio. When you ask for a dram of whiskey at a bar, there's a good chance you'll be served a glass of Glenfiddich. This heritage Scottish brand is one of the big players in a sector that is still very much linked to families and territory. But how is the image and taste of whisky changing in today's market? And what can the historical companies do to adapt? And perhaps more crucially, what do they need to hold on to and preserve? I sat down with Glenfiddich's True and Grant Ralph to talk about what whisky means to him, to Scotland, and to the many people who enjoy sitting down in front of the fire with a tumbler on the rocks. Glenfiddich itself, I think, fairly universally known, hopefully loved. I have the opportunity to travel the world quite a lot with whisky and. Glenfiddich tends to be the first single malt that most people have seen, tried, again, hopefully fallen in love with. And that maybe stems from the 60s, 70s, when we were really starting to put single malt in front of people's hearts and minds in a way. We were one of the first to start marketing it and one of the first to really establish the category. From there, I suppose we, I say we, my side of the grants is not the grants that own it, unfortunately. So I didn't arrive here in a helicopter. It was a seat 27 on an easy jet, unfortunately. So the family business stems from 137 years of continuous ownership from William Grant onwards. And each of those generations just really committed to curating and ensuring that Glenfiddich is handed down into good hands for the next generation, which doesn't always happen in whiskey and is a rarity. What do you think that family approach does to the business? How is it different to perhaps other major companies? Because there are some incredibly large-scale companies in the sector. What difference does it make to the way that the business is run and therefore in the resulting product? How does the whiskey taste different at the end of it? Yeah, you think about the consumer sitting down at night with their Weller and Glenfiddich and does a family running the business make that much difference to the flavour? In a way, hopefully, because Glenfiddich does have a commitment to each and every day making the best whiskey that they can and that comes from a stewardship of a distilling family. I think... That role has changed because you have a couple of founders, William and Elizabeth Grant, coming from very humble backgrounds. They existed in a era where merchants, entrepreneurs, we all know the names of them, the Ballantines, Johnny Walkers, William Grant himself, they set out with a dream as William did and he instilled that into his next generation and from there they carried that banner in a way. Normally that flounders or fails around the third or fourth generation. The family businesses don't necessarily thrive. Some of them don't survive. And I think staying really, really true to the actual production and the creation and making sure that the community of distillers and people that actually work at Glenfiddich are the f focus, I think that's why Glenfiddich has maintained this position that it's in. You've mentioned a few brands and there's many family names and the names of these major brands that dominate the sector. I wonder also what 
whisky still means to Scottish identity and from a food perspective? Obviously, historically, it's something that we've all associated with it. But do you think that from a soft power point of view, Scotland is still very much invested in making it one of its flag-bearing products? Is there still as much pride and joy and support of it as its leading food banner? Mm. Such a such a lovely question, isn't it? Because I think Scotland punches above its weight with food and drink. Ireland, potentially the same. And one of the big reasons is export. Scotch whisky is exported all the way around the world and universally understood or certainly known. You also have a huge diaspora, right? Scots and Irish. There's as many living abroad as there are living at home. So that, I think in a way, in whisky's early day, helped to carry the kind of message. In the modern era whiskey and certainly single malt has been synonymous with a certain type of aspirational consumption or at least a lot of these brands and Glenfiddich included have been part of somebody's progression through their own development of taste through their own successes whiskey is very much part of the way people celebrate or come together which in my role is lovely to see because we can be part of ceremony celebrations commiserations whiskey is very much at the centre of that, in a way that almost no other spirit, not that I would ever look down upon them, but whisky is almost synonymous with the opening of very significant bottles at significant moments can be really powerful. And I think Scotland has managed to maintain the integrity of Scotch whisky through diligence, a lot of hard work, a lot of good quality. I don't see a lot of bad whisky coming out of Scotland in a way that maybe you might see coming out of other countries. And single malt itself, it flies. I think it's a category that a lot of people really want to get into at the moment. There seems more interest than ever. And larger brands like Glenfiddich have a role in welcoming people into the category and then allowing them to adventure or discover through all the different distilleries that there are now and different expressions as well. On the subject of how Scotch whisky compares to others, even just from a flavour profile point of view, from a beginner's perspective, if you were to give a total introduction, what characterises the Scottish taste versus the Japanese taste, for example, or a French taste? Because I know that there are certain bottles, certain casks that you're producing that are trying to merge certain different flavours or certain different influences together. If you were to line up the big five, American-style whiskies, Japanese, Irish, Scotch, and then... Maybe you would add on there now Australian or New World, shall we say, New World whiskies, of which there are some great whiskies. American whiskies, almost like the country itself, quite big, quite bold, quite brash. Rise and bourbons can be really syrupy, really toasty, but they're kind of dialed up. Japanese whiskies, again, maybe like the country itself, a little bit more sophisticated in a way or delicate. Irish whiskey, again, an interesting history there, but Irish whiskey, typically speaking, or maybe lighter. They have wonderful pot still style which can give you waxiness, but you'll have a lot of Irish whiskies that maybe behave a little bit like single malt scotch as well. And then for us, I suppose the one thing about single malt scotch whiskey is there is a breadth of style. Even 10 minutes going left or right out of my house, you have two distilleries producing two completely different styles of whiskey, and that's just in Speyside. So maybe one of the strengths is the variety. But the classic single malt scotch whiskey tends to have a lot of richness because of the base cereal, which is malt tends to have a lot of mouthfeel and finish, mainly because of the way it's distilled in small copper pot stills and then the integrity of casks that we're using. 
And then what we do have in Scotland is an advantage in terms of age stock. We've been doing it for a long time. Scotch whisky has typically been at the forefront of most whisky booms. Irish whisky along the way suffered a little bit and doesn't have as much age stock as the Scots certainly do. So maybe there's an advantage there that you will see a lot more old Scottish whisky. Speaking of the product itself and how it is accessible and people do love it, when you have a product that has been running for such a long time and you know that people want it, expect it, how do you keep pushing it forward? Do you? Can you? Is there still room for improvement after all these years? How much tinkering can you actually do? Yeah, so it's interesting with single malt, the product itself, the bottle on the table, it was essentially made maybe 12, 15 years ago. So the point at distillation, there isn't too much experimentation with us anyway. We almost see ourselves as customers of distillers from the past. So they created these fine liquids and now we can bottle them. So most of the innovation or experimentations happens at the back end, which is maturation. So looking at different types of casks, looking at different types of packaging, sustainability is a huge drive for us at the moment, looking at different ways of reaching our audience, whether that be tastings within the virtual world or bringing more people to the actual brand home is a huge thing. I know you've visited Scotland relatively recently as well. There's a huge, I suppose, hunger for people to come and see where the whiskey is made. And I think that enables us to talk to new audiences as well. Another thing that I'm really interested in that we were just talking about is this idea of reaching new audiences. Do you think that whiskey had a bit of an image problem from the point of view of the demographic that it was associated with? It was quite limited. We can picture it in our heads. The fire is roaring and you're leaning back in your leather armchair and you have your whiskey in your hand and you're probably male and older, right? How did you go about changing that? And how does whiskey fit with those other demographics? When you go around and see these people, what do they say to you in terms of how they've come to love it? How is the image changing and how did you do it? I suppose there's two elements to that, isn't there? There's what we did, but also what changed within the consumer. So there's a pull and a push factor. Number one, that image of the old guy sitting in front of his fire drinking whiskey. That's a wonderful image. I think it's just the old guy that's changed and... There's something very, very nice about sitting in front of a fire drinking whiskey, right? But that... that, Yeah, it it didn't come up for nothing. I know, right? And it's maybe something that Scotch whiskey producers were guilty of, whereby that was just the easiest way to do things, or at least that seemed to be the consumer base that we could rely upon. I'd say 2024 and onwards, you're maybe looking at whiskey existing in more high-energy environments, and certainly if I go to certain markets... Nigeria, South Africa, Latin America. Whiskey is not by any means in an armchair by the fire. It's in the club, it's at gigs, it's outside. It's part of the lifestyle there, which is way more high energy. You know, I leave Speyside for a couple of days where it was still quite a traditional part of the world and whiskey would be drunk by the dram in a pub and very much just that single dram and some water or whatnot. And then you land in Lagos and every second table has a bottle on it of distilleries that I would drive past every day in Speyside, Glenfiddich included. And it's almost quite surreal, but I suppose we kind of touched on it earlier. Single malt, it sort of infiltrates into culture quite nicely. And I think what people in maybe these emerging markets understand is it has significance in age. Brand names like Glenfiddich have been around for so long that there's a trust. The liquid stands up to that. 
there's a price point associated with it, which in some markets is also a great thing because people do want to spend on that moment. And whiskey's definitely been able to tap into that as well. But I think honestly as well, there's maybe just a generation coming through now that are way more considered in their choices when they're drinking alcohol. Less and better. I mean, I was working in and around wine and spirits in the late 90s and early 2000s and a lot of the industry then was about volume and it wasn't that considered where you may be looking at a generation now where if you don't drink that often, what do you drink when you actually choose to indulge in? You want something with a great story, heritage, something that appeals to your way of thinking perhaps or just something with some significance which it's great for us that are in that industry because we're storytellers and we really like to dig into the fact that this is not just a bottle on a table. There's actually way more that goes into it than that. Yeah, and I think also the changing culture of cocktails must have something to do with it, right? Because it isn't just going to the bar at a club and getting a couple of mixers, but people have just come to a completely new approach to having cocktails going to somewhere specialised that really takes care with it and you have the one cocktail, but you better make it worth it. And whiskey is a huge part of that because there is a sort of vintage kind of old school feel to a lot of these cocktails that have become more popular. And a lot of them are whiskey based and they are classics. There is a sort of gravitas, a sense of classicity to whiskey, isn't there? Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think it's not something that we should always rely on, but there is something in the, the image you have in your mind of a really good old fashioned or Manhattan or the great whiskey, the Rob Roy or even just the neat dram, there is something, just that moment of indulgence that at the moment that seems to be what people are looking for. And maybe it taps into people are more informed about food and more informed about provenance. And I think Scotch whiskey ticks a lot of those boxes because it is storied. Single malt Scotch, by definition, can only come from one very particular place. And yeah, we definitely feel very fortunate for that. That was Drew and Grant Ralph talking to me at Midori House. You're listening to The Menu. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. More than 1.5 million euros worth of wine has gone missing from La Tour d'Argent, one of Paris's most famous restaurants and the inspiration for the film Ratatouille. The loss was discovered during a routine inventory of the 300,000 bottles in the 442-year-old restaurant cellar. An estimated 83 bottles are thought to be missing, including a bottle of Romanet Conti, one of the most expensive vintages in the world. A tomato war is bubbling in Europe as Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez declared that Spanish tomatoes are better than French ones. Following a tough week in France with farmers' strikes, French politicians expressed solidarity with striking farmers and complained that their Spanish counterparts enjoy an unfair economic advantage due to less demanding environmental standards, which result in lower costs. Prime Minister Sanchez rejected these comments, saying that the popularity of Spanish fruit and veg, particularly tomatoes, is due to their superior quality. And finally, Tokyo's fish market has just opened a long-awaited new section of the site, which includes Japanese-style seafood restaurants and a spa for relaxation. The new food market, named Toyosu Senyaku Banrai, will assemble an Edo Samurai-era street, lined with around 65 restaurants serving mostly fresh catch from the market next door. 
The wholesale venue has struggled since partly relocating from the beloved Skiji market. However, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government hopes that the new opening will attract some 2.6 million visitors annually. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Kiara. Thanks, Monica. You're listening to The Menu. The Chefs the Chefs Club may well be the world's most exclusive gastronomic club. Normally based in Paris, it is quite literally a club for the chefs. But not just any chef. Only those who cook for heads of state or government. Of course, like any self-respecting club, they hold annual conventions. Monocle's Chris Chermak was invited to their annual get-together in Washington, D.C., and he joins me now to tell me how it went. Chris, I'm so happy you're back in London. But before coming back, you were in Washington, D.C., where you got the chance to attend this incredible event. How was it? And how does Chef the Chef actually work? It was one of the most favorite things I did, I have to say, while I was in Washington, D.C., It was a number of events, to be honest. So there's this club called the Chef to Chef, which is for chefs of heads of state. And it's kind of like any other group, frankly. You need to have an annual convention, something where you get together. So they've done this in various places around the world each year. They were in Madrid last year, in Paris. So this time they all came to Washington, D.C., They cooked for a local nonprofit, DC Central Kitchen. I was there for that. And then particularly also they held this big event at the French Ambassador's Residence in Washington, DC, which was just a chance for them all to get together and chat. And it was they were incredibly open. They were they were very friendly. It was loud. Everyone was talking, sharing ideas and thoughts and so on and so forth. And it was just a great thing to be a part of, frankly. It's interesting that you say that they were really chatty because you'd think for someone who gets an insight into some of the most you know, hallowed and secret in many respects, dining rooms um, around the world, there would be a level of secrecy around what actually goes on in the kitchens of these incredible places. But how important is food to opening up the hearts of the heads of state and those who visit them? Oh, absolutely. It's incredibly important. And I think that's what's interesting about also the way they talked about it, frankly. They were very careful, but they love talking about their approach, where they get their ideas from, how they approach things like a state dinner and other aspects like that. And they were all very conscious of the importance of food in diplomacy in a number of different ways, whether it's simply kind of setting the table for discussion between heads of state and kind of why that matters. Essentially, it was often along the lines of people don't necessarily notice things go right, but they will if something goes wrong. So you're kind of setting the stage for a smooth discussion between heads of state. And then they were also just, of course, very conscious of the fact that they are cooking for one person whose health is extremely important. So they are responsible, essentially, for the health of a head of state or government. And how about the mood on the event itself? Was it boisterous? Was everybody having a good time? What was the food at the actual event like? And can you make us listen to some of it? I can, absolutely. It was extremely boisterous throughout. As I say, they first sort of did this event at DC Central Kitchen, a local nonprofit, where you had all of these chefs going to a nonprofit and cooking for the homeless. This place cooks sort of 10,000 meals a day. And so you had all these sort of head chefs for heads of state filing into this kitchen and working with volunteers and others to kind of help prepare the dishes for that day. And that's where, if we if we want, I can start with one interview. That's where I first spoke with 
Monaco's chef. His name is Christian Garcia. He is the sort of head of the club of chef to chef or the chair, if you will, among the chefs. And he kind of gave me a first sense of what they do, why this, why their contacts are important. We are a kind of a J20 of gastronomy. And uh, we have what we call a, a blue phone. The head of state, they have the, the red phone. We have the, the blue phone. And when uh, we have an um, official lunch or dinner, we want to try to, to, to ask what is your, the favorite dish of your, of your boss, what you love, what you... It's important to have this contact. I will always remember when the, the Nelson Mandela came at, at the palace, I asked his chef, how can I make him happy? What does he like, what he doesn't like? And every time when we have, the, we have head of state like that, at the palace for me in Monaco. We phone or sometimes they call me, oh, I have your boss, what does he like? It's important to have this. this. Do you remember what Nelson Mandela liked? Yes, we served him. I remember it was a turbot and uh, we prepared him a lamb. And uh, as a dessert, I wanted to put a small South African touch, but not with South African food. When I thought about South Africa, I thought about diamonds. And I created a diamond dessert called Star of Africa. It was the biggest diamond found in South Africa. And it was a chocolate, white chocolate with vanilla and strawberry. How good is that? <laughs> a G20 of gastronomy and the blue phone where you can call up, tap into the espionage network of the kitchens around the world. I love that. Exactly. The blue phone. And I can tell you that one other person that I spoke to, Alex Johnstone, who's the chef of Canada's Justin Trudeau, he was relatively new to this event. So he also, for example, talked about the importance of this for him, suddenly being able to contact all of these people. It's just extraordinary. And that's really how they use this event, but also then throughout the year, the fact that they can call each other up and say, hey, what does your head of state like, what they don't like, allergies, all that kind of stuff. That's where this comes in really important. Well, I think it's quite interesting because, yes, of course, you want to serve someone something that they like, but don't you run the risk of just always serving them the same dish time and time again? You know, if Joe Biden likes ice cream, is he getting ice cream every single place he goes? He must be like, enough. I've had all of the ice cream I could possibly stomach in my lifetime. Absolutely. And that is actually a perfect segue to our next clip, because this is something that Mark Flanagan talked about. He is the chef to King Charles III. He's a veteran. He's the veteran of the group. He's been there for over 20 years, cooked for Queen Elizabeth as well. And he told us about exactly this question of sort of why they don't always talk about favorite foods. Let's have a listen. I have a story about that sort of thing, but it's from before I became involved in this. And it's one of the reasons why now all of the chefs never talk about their principal's favorites. Because many, many years ago, when I was a young chef working in a hotel, we had a head of state come to visit. I can say the head of state, it was Jacques Chirac. And everybody knew that his favorite dish was a dish called Tete de Veau. And it's made from calf's head. And I was told, you need to make this for him. This is his favorite. You must make this. And I practiced and I practiced and I practiced to make this Tete de Veau. But the poor man, everywhere he goes, that's all he gets. 
And so this is a, another good thing that can come from the club because you can phone up and say, oh yeah, whatever you do, don't give him set the vote. And that's, that's why we never talk about what the principal's favourites are. Because as soon, everybody wants to do their favourite. And if, if you get that all the time, pretty soon you're going to be bored or, or fed up with it. So even when, in that sense, another chef calls you about, say, King Charles, you won't even give that chef necessarily his no, favorite dish. we give a steer, we, we like talk it. about. And, and, you know, the other thing is, with heads of state, when, when they're traveling, you know, they want to experience the local culture too. Just like all of us when we travel, we want to try that local culture. So we, we, we don't encourage anything, but we give them a steer and anything to avoid that sort of thing. Tête de veau, breakfast, lunch and dinner. <laughs> Could you stomach it? <laughs> Another thing that I took from that interview is this idea that it really is quite an intimate relationship that you have with your principal because you you access this aspect of their life which is very personal and a lot of the time yeah it's not just about state visits but it's about feeding them day in day out knowing their most intimate taste and their guilty pleasures perhaps even did you get a sense that there is a real connection a real relationship that's built over the years between these chefs and their principals Absolutely. And I think there's a couple of things that go into that. One is just the fact that some of these chefs have been with their heads of state for a long time. In some cases, they've been with them before they were heads of state and then were invited along at the point where they became the head of state. The other aspect that a few of them talked about was just not only getting to know the intricacies, but it's also so different from working in a restaurant because it's not like you have lots of different people coming. So where in a restaurant you're going to have a menu and you're kind of showcasing what you do, this is very different because you're cooking for that one person and you need to keep it varied. You need to keep them interested in your food. So you're not going to cook your favorite dish or the dish that you're good at every day. You need to vary it up with every meal, every breakfast, lunch, and dinner that we're talking about. And so one chef I spoke to who I think went into that a little bit, the personal relationship that she has is Elmarie Pretorius. She's a chef for the president of South Africa. And she talked about this long relationship that she's had with him. So in South Africa, we've got deputy presidents and presidents. And my first job with presidency was as the chef of the deputy president. And then the deputy president became the president after 10 years. So, so we have many deputy presidents. In that 10 years, I think there was four different deputy presidents that I worked for. But the last one became the president. And when he became the president, he asked me if I don't want to go and, yes, like go to, because it's a different house, move to the president's house. And that's in 2018, and that's when I got into it to be the president's one. Yes, so actually been doing this job for very long, but it's the same thing, same person also. So I think I've been cooking for him for, must be eight, five, eight, nine, nine, nine or ten years. Oh my goodness, getting old now. <laughs> very long. <laughs> so it's up for elections again, so I'm crossing fingers. But I think as a chef, I know it's important people that we cook for, but it might as well be not important people because at the end of the day for me is whoever the guest is that's the one that I want to keep really happy so they, they must all be happy 
So even the support staff who's going to sit and eat as well, we want them to have the same nice experience than what the president's having. So I do believe that if they have nice wine, if they have nice food, they're all happy and they sit long and they, they're having a good time. So I do believe that it does make a difference in how the end result of whatever they're talking about will be, definitely. But yeah, my, my aim is to give everybody something really good that they're going to enjoy. It's a little bit like when you just don't know what to get your mother for Christmas after, after a while, right? It's like, I've been doing this for 20 years. What is it that you want? I think it's really interesting that she says, you know, I want for everyone to have a good time. I wonder if there's almost a hierarchy in certain embassies or certain offices where depending on the importance in a kind of G8 type of sense of the person who's visiting, if you put on more of a show or less of a show, is there a hierarchy of visiting guests in terms of how many courses you give them? How long do you keep them at the table? How many bottles do you open? Which bottles do you open? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I think we'll hear about that from the last clip we're going to play in a second. But I think to your point on that, it's interesting that it depends. I didn't I didn't get that sense from the chefs I spoke to. It's one of those things that, you know, you imagine perhaps they keep to themselves if they have certain people that they make a little bit of extra effort for. But in general, the chefs actually talked about also the egalitarianism of it and the fact that they will put in the same effort no matter who is there. And also kind of similar to the way that South Africa's chef, Emery Pretorius, was talking about there, they did talk about the importance of the staff within Buckingham Palace, Mark Flanagan talked about that as well, or others, the fact that they have to keep the staff happy as well. So I think many of them actually took quite a egalitarian approach. Well, you also spoke to somebody who perhaps had the hardest job of them all. I don't know. They're all pretty hard jobs. But someone who cooked for the gathering. You cook for all the chefs, the chefs. You're the chef, the chef, the chef, the chefs. Who <laughs> was this person and what did they have to say? So given that this was hosted in Washington, D.C., this was the White House chef, Christetta Comerford. She was the host of the event. She cooked at the White House. There was an event with Jill Biden, the first lady, where all of the chefs were invited to. A few of them that I spoke to gave her rave reviews for her cooking during the event, but also talked about that it was interesting for them to suddenly be celebrated. This was not something that they're usually used to. So getting, getting to be part of an event like this at the White House was very special for them. And just in general, I think that aspect of it, the fact that Christetta Comerford was doing this, goes in some ways to the other side of what this is, right? This is the importance of it. It's not just cooking for individual heads of state, but it is also doing things like state dinners, right? And that is something also that many of them talked about, the importance of the big state dinners, a chance to showcase their local culture, something also very important. Heads of state come to visit and their staff come to visit as well. They will be also there at the state dinners and they will bring back an impression of that country. I spoke with, for example, Ivory Coast's head chef about that. She felt it was incredibly important to present the Ivory Coast. And so back, though, to the White House chef, Christetta Comerford, she talked about this thing and also just in general the idea of cooking as the chef de chef de chef. When we formulate a state dinner, it's very thoughtful. Every decoration, every music, every color, every plate, every entertainment is really thought wisely. So nothing really stands up because each of them are different in their own ways. So we have to make sure that no matter what, 
country or continent or area you came from, you get the same hospitality as any other countries. And can you talk, I've spoken to quite a few here just about the mix in that sense, how you approach it. The idea in part of course is to bring about is American cooking and show showcase what America offers. But then you're also trying to bring in a little bit of that country, that culture. How do you go about that mix? Yes. One thing that we chefs consider number one in formulating a menu is of course the seasonality of the year. So that's always incorporated into our menu. So we also think about the guests that are coming in, things or nuances or flavors that are really endearing to them. And since America is such a wonderful conglomeration of different flavors and food from the immigrants, we also want to incorporate that into the message of when we are doing the menus for the state. Well, I bet that you ate quite well during this reporting trip, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the funny thing, having said that, was sadly I did not get to go to the White House event and the French ambassador's residence was catered because, of course, none of the chefs wanted to cook for that event. The food was very good, but it was quite funny to be an event of all these chefs and then have the food be catered from outside company. <laughs> You'll have to wait until you get invited to the White House. I look forward it'll to happen, that. It'll happen, it'll happen. The joy is that actually all of this reporting is also part of this wonderful story that you've written for the upcoming issue of Monocle, the March issue. So if you do want to read more about this, do get yourself a copy of the March issue where you can also see the wonderful images of this evening. Chris, thank you so much for joining me in the studio and what an insight. Thank you very much. It's been very fun. Great event. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Kira Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our sound engineers were Maria Lebevan and Lily Austin. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs>